Welcome to Mainly History. I'm your host, Ian Saxine. 2020's election season, this endless slog through an endless year, is well and truly reaching its end point. And this year, Maine may well play a pivotal role in its outcome. Its key Senate race is getting plenty of well-deserved attention, but the possibility of a close presidential election has also brought a different aspect of Maine politics into the spotlight. The Pine Tree State's unusual practice of dividing its electoral votes by district. In contrast to the winner-take-all method used by every other state except one. In practice this year, it means that Donald Trump might again carry Maine's 2nd Congressional District, winning a single electoral vote, even while it seems likely his Democratic opponent, Joe Biden, will win the state's other three votes. Analysts have even outlined certain plausible scenarios in which Maine provides the deciding 270th electoral vote to the winning candidate, and others where it doesn't, leading to an electoral college tie. But why did Maine adopt this unusual district method? It turns out that Maine voters have a well-established history of considering electoral reforms, from ending the electoral college altogether to opting for the first ever statewide ranked choice voting system. My guest today is a noted authority on local and national politics. Jim Melcher, professor of political science at University of Maine at Farmington, will dive in with us to examine the roots of Maine's reforming tendencies and compare its path to the other state that marches to its own electoral drummer, Nebraska. Bet you didn't see that one coming. Early voting is well underway. Our show should be too. Let's do this. Jim, welcome to Mainly History. Good morning. It's nice to talk to you today. You are you know, maybe the expert on, uh, on sort of Maine's particular electoral college politics these days and, it, and its origins. And mm-hmm. so the, the first question that, uh, that I have for you is that uh, a lot of people generally don't know that states have very wide latitude in deciding how their electoral votes are awarded. Have there been any particularly wild or surprising attempts to change how states apportioned their electoral votes before the 20th century? Or sorry, before the late 20th century? Well, there, there were a lot of efforts by states to try a variety of different district plans, which worked in different ways. But the last one to actually enact one was Michigan in the 1890s. And it was almost purely a matter of partisan turnover. If I recall correctly, uh, the Democrats took over the legislature for the first time in a long, long time and said, as electoral college politics are wont to do, hey, we can use this to help ourselves out and we're going to devise uh, an unusual system of going back to 
uh, using a district plan. But there are lots of different ways you could do it. Uh, when Maine, the, the initial proposal in Maine in 1969 would have divided Maine into four electoral districts. There would not have been a statewide set of electors. So you would have had districts in that original um, in that original plan, the Glenn Starbird plan, would have created districts just for the Electoral College and absolutely nothing else, which would have been different. But there's a long history of district plans. And it's how a lot of states dealt with electors in that period of the early 1800s when states started moving from state legislative selection of, of, of electors to starting to allow a popular vote. As you know, um, states could choose not to have a popular vote at all. South that Carolina never had a popular vote until after they were readmitted to the union with a new constitution in the 1870s. You know, and that even came up in Florida in 2000, that some of the Republicans in the legislature, when Florida became, well, when Florida became the... Uh, object of consternation, hair pulling, and the full lawyer employment act of 2000. Uh, some people said, hey, we could just say we're going to pick the electors and we're not going to count the popular vote. I would say that would have to be the weirdest of the plans in recent years of saying, yeah, we just had an election, but you know, it doesn't count for anything I would say would be. So what's the story of the main district plan? So a district plan doesn't have to be congressional districts. In Maine, it is. Maine had never split its vote uh, starting in 1972 when it enacted the district plan, which has a lot to do with the 1969 uh, aftermath of the 68 election. Maine had never split its votes until 2016. And uh, in 2016, Hillary Clinton had the most votes statewide, won the first district, which is the more Southern, not necessarily more democratic, but socially more liberal district. And then Donald Trump won the second congressional district, uh, which takes in about the Northern three quarters to uh, 80% of the state that's more conservative, had a lot of the traits that uh, of places where Donald Trump had run very well. So as a result, in 2016, Maine cast three electoral votes for Hillary Clinton and one electoral vote for Donald Trump, which it had never done before. So now that I've explained the district plan, let's go back to how this started. It starts before 1968. Um, 1968 arouses a lot of desire to change the electoral college because of the fear that somebody... Uh, namely George Wallace, the American Independent Party candidate that was running on a anti-civil rights, states' rights, law and order uh, platform. Uh, the fear was that he would carry states and throw the race into the House of Representatives or that the popular vote winner would lose the election. And because it was a third party candidate that was leading to this, Neither party had the incentive to line up behind one plan or the other the way we did in 2000 uh, with the Al Gore-George W. Bush election. So all over the country, Republicans and Democrats united to say we've got to get rid of the Electoral College. Both Richard Nixon and Hubert Humphrey, the main candidates of that year, supported change. 
85% uh, of the public in a survey suggested getting rid of the Electoral College. Wow. So the, which, try and imagine 85% of the country to get them to agree on what color yeah. the sky is on a sunny day today. It was a Impossible. very different era on a lot of these kinds of things. But there was very strong bipartisan support. And any kind of change of this kind of thing usually is going to take that. And certainly if you want to amend the Constitution, having a two-thirds supermajority means you need a ton of people in the other party to go with what you want. Uh, but as right. I say, Nixon was for this. Humphrey was for it. It passed the House of Representatives, what was called, and I swear I'm not making this up, even though it sounds made up, the Buy-Seller Amendment, uh, named for Birch <laughs> Buy and Emanuel Seller passed the House and only died because of a filibuster led by uh, Strom Thurmond and Sam Irvin, who felt that this overturned uh, the constitutional regime. So that Oh, so Strom Thurmond filibustered other good ideas besides civil rights. Uh, no. Without taking a stance on the question. Yes, he made his feelings known on many of these. Yeah, he did. Um, and, you know, the Electoral College, my feelings are very mixed about the Electoral College. On balance, I Fair. would agree. Um, but that's how it died. And they made many efforts to invoke cloture, stop the filibuster, didn't have it. So part of why Maine can do this is because the timing is right in, 19, in 1969, after that 1968 election. Remember, Wallace gets 46 electoral votes one of which was from a faithless elector. And that was one of the other thing. A faithless elector is somebody who doesn't vote for the candidate that carried their state. Uh, it was, I think, a Nixon elector in North Carolina who freelanced and said, well, I think I'm going to vote for George Wallace just to kind of make a statement about... One of the things I enjoy about election years is that so many of my fellow citizens get to learn things that horrify them that are technically legal. And yes, there's a this ritual every four years, and then they go, Oh, wait, they can do that? Oh, so it's, it's, it's a little bit like the spare tire in the trunk, you don't really think about this stuff until it comes out. So, yeah, I mean, deadlines motivate people, it's human nature. So, let me go back. Maine was in a unique position for, for a couple reasons. You know, and again, all those other things, willingness to experiment, all the rest of this. At the heart of all this, of course, is this now strange dance that Maine and Nebraska are in, in the 21st century. And of course, uh, we'll, we'll start with Maine being as we are, the Mainly History podcast. Uh, but so, you know, compared to many states, Maine has a, a fairly uh, odd political culture compared to a lot of different states, right? So I'm thinking, you know, high third party and independent voting. Uh, it was Ross Perot's best state in 1992. And if people think there's not gonna be a Ross Perot episode, they're very wrong. And, you know, uh, history of electing independent candidates, a statewide office, third parties to local seats, first state to institute ranked choice voting, right? They of course were the scene of Alf Landon's triumphant presidential campaign of 1936. And Vermont, carried Maine as and, Maine goes, so goes Vermont. That's right, that's right. That was always my favorite, like I thought, 
that's a great headline, like Alf Landon triumphant in Maine or something like that. Like true, but technically misleading headlines. It was James Farley, you know, as postmaster general and Roosevelt's campaign manager that came up with the, well, as Maine goes, so goes Vermont. So people who think snark and political campaigns is a modern development, right. um, not entirely true. What is your explanation for this this streak of Maine independence? Is this, a, it's a small state population wise or like, you know, Vermont and Montana have idiosyncratic cultures in terms of unusual coalition building or is it something else? I have perhaps a three-pronged explanation because as an academic, I can never explain things with a simple parsimonious answer. Fair. The first thing brings me back, I've, I've always been a big fan of the Daniel Elazar political culture model. And if you're not familiar with the Elazar model, he developed this in the 1960s and it's still widely used today. And essentially Elazar's thesis, which has some holes in it, but in a lot of ways still holds up well, is America's got an overall political culture, you know, where the world's big freedom junkies, fear of tyranny, all of those things. But he argued there are three regional subcultures that flow out of the colonial experience that largely go from east to west. Uh, in the south, you have a traditionalistic culture, values leadership, low participation, comfortable with one party rule. Further north, coming out of the middle colonies like New York and New Jersey, you have an individualistic culture that explains Chicago politics, that politics is how you get stuff for yourself, that the reason to be involved in politics is to, you know, gain something personally for yourself. So parties are good, corruption is okay, all of that kind of thing. But the third political culture is the one that comes out of New England, and that's what Elazar calls the moralistic political culture. Moralistic political culture has its roots in the Puritans and other people mm -hmm. that came to New England. And we should never forget that obviously many people were brought to America against their will. There were already natives here, but the people most dominant in setting the political culture, New England was very much affected by people who saw government and politics as the search for a better society, that saw the purpose as we should create a society that is a good example, that is honest, that values high levels of political participation, that values clean government, and didn't value parties as much because, you know, parties develop in Tammany Hall, in Jersey City, in Boss Pendergast, New Jersey, uh, um, excuse me, Kansas City, uh, in Chicago with the machines, Parties grow as a way to, you know, get patronage, get stuff for yourself. So the moralistic culture never embraced that vision of parties and was always willing to look at third political parties, different ideologies. And because of that, the ideologies don't wind up being all sort of down the center. When you get a two-party competition, they tend to kind of compete toward the middle because the point is... To, to quote Mr. Sheen, winning. And in hmm. our culture, it's more, no, this is a competitive set of different ideas. And, and moralistic doesn't have to be religious. It could be moralistic. My hometown is Madison, Wisconsin. And there are highly moralistic people who are militantly atheist. And that culture spreads 
across New England to Midwestern states like Wisconsin, Minnesota, the Dakotas. And if you look, who are the, and Utah certainly, who are the states with high participation, high civic involvement, cleanest forms of government? It's all the moralistic states. It's all that New England influence moving west. So I would say that's the biggest reason. Moralistic culture states like Wisconsin and the Progressive Party, like North Dakota and the Nonpartisan League, like the old Farmer Labor Party in Minnesota, uh, and today, you know, the Vermont Progressive Party or, you know, extreme, relatively extreme libertarianism in New Hampshire. States with moralistic culture don't just look at parties as for winning, but they're willing to consider a much, much bigger menu of political parties and believe in the participation. And Maine has uh, had that for a long time. The second Jim, that's very interesting. I, I have to say, as a as a historian, I am we, we as a breed are are skeptical of models, but there's there's something really fascinating there. Yeah, so we, we, we political scientists like to create generalizable phenomena over and, grand narrative, which is why you guys write the interesting stuff that people <laughs> buy. Well, one of the things that interests me is that is perhaps even a good example. That schema at least uh, also shows that if there are three political sort of traditions in the United States. And of course, there's these other books, you know, Albion Seed, Arguing for Culture, Hearths from, from parts of England. Colin Woodward's American Nations has been making this claim and for a, a more popular audience. And a fine Mainer. A absolutely, yes. Right for the Portland Press Herald. Absolutely. One thing that I noticed though, so really only one of these three political traditions doesn't mistrust political parties, albeit for different reasons. And the traditionalists were suspicious of elections in general, of oh, potentially too much, right, too much democracy, potentially overturning the system uh, upon which usually a unfree non-white labor force was, was kept in check. And so, and then, oh, go ahead. no, and then, but then we have the moralists as well, also believing that these parties are, you know, are, are full of you know, these potential corruptions and, and what have you, which I suppose also helps explain the sort of New England reformers hostility to political party machines and political mm -hmm. parties, right, in the, in the progressive era. And hostility, but also just the sense of what is a party for? Yes. That I don't, you know, if I'm in Chicago in 1960, and I want a job or I want my kid to get into the University of Illinois, I know there's a way to plug into that. Whether or not I think it's a wonderful idea that there's such a party machine, I know it's what I'm going to have to deal with in order to get things done. And so it isn't just a moral judgment. It's just a matter of reacting to facts on, on the ground. And Mainers are, and people in the moralistic culture tend to be ticket splitters. And a great example of this going back into relatively recent history is 2008. If you look at 2008, Barack Obama wins Maine overwhelmingly, does extremely well in Maine and wins by double digits. And so does Susan Collins that there were tens of thousands of people in Maine that voted for both the Democrat Barack Obama and the Republican Susan Collins. And, and at the local level, you see this even more. Maine politics is very personal. It is very retail. 
you run by run knocking on doors. Our state legislative districts have about, our house districts have under 10,000 people in them. So you're expected to get to know your neighbors. And so people often make judgments on individuals, on people. They'll say something like, well, I don't normally vote for Republicans, but that guy, he's really good. So this willingness to ticket split also plays very much into this willingness to consider third-party candidates that people don't feel like it's something they have to do to get something from the system. Uh, Maine has a sense of independence. You know, we broke away from Massachusetts in 1820. There's a sense, and you know, a lot of the people that came up here were seeking to get away from some of the institutions in Massachusetts. And you know, Mainers really think of themselves as independent. And I think you would say the same thing about all of Northern New England, you know, live free or fair. die. You know, all of that fits in very well with the political culture of northern New England, even as Vermont has become much more to the left of Maine. And New Hampshire historically was more libertarian. And, you know, there's a there's a change there in both states, in part because of influx and migration in the 1970s and later that has affected Maine. In spite of what you'll always hear here about people from away, Maine has never had as much of that influencing its political culture as either Vermont or New Hampshire have had uh, over the last 50 years. The third thing is dirigo. Our state motto is dirigo, which is Latin for I lead or I direct. Mainers value leaders that will try things that are new, that will try things that are innovative. If you went back, um, I'm thinking back to graduate school and uh, uh, what political science called diffusion of innovation. Who comes up with ideas and who picks up on them? Maine has always been a state that prides itself on national leadership, on coming up with ideas that we're willing to try things that are new. Uh, doesn't mean we always go along with them, but we're willing to consider them. So, you know, ranked choice voting comes up in there. And in the case of ranked choice voting, there's a separate explanation, which is that we're one of the very few states east of the Mississippi that has initiative, where voters can put things on the ballot. Uh, ranked choice voting was installed when voters chose to do it, and voters were often more interested in doing this than political parties. And in Maine, the Republican Party has been quite resistant to it. I now, remember that campaign. They yeah. were they were all over our, our voting areas and school gyms and everything. Oh, yeah. Well, and the funny thing about it is, while it got the most international attention, in Maine, of the initiatives on the ballot, I believe there were six of them, it got by far the least attention in Maine. It was the one that had a small number of core people who cared really intensely about it, but we were voting on mandating Medicaid expansion. That was much bigger. We were voting on marijuana legalization. That was much bigger. On some things about taxes, the background check proposal from Michael Bloomberg in Every Town for Gun Safety was on the ballot. Ranked choice voting was really kind of the wallflower kid that didn't get a lot of focus compared to all of those things that were more emotional for people. And the segues into how Maine came up with the Electoral College. So if right I may ask, Jim, right, the, right. 
So rank choice voting, just for the, uh, the folks from away who maybe have not heard of this or how it works. Also briefly, how does rank choice voting work? And as we saw with the Jared Golden congressional election in, in 2018, how might it be different than a, a first past the post that we're, well, most people expect? Rank choice voting is an effort to let people rank their choices as they are voting, that you can say, I want this candidate first. If I can't have that candidate, I want this one second. It's sometimes also called instant runoff voting. Runoff elections try to accomplish the same thing, which is who would a majority choose of the top two choices? And we should add in places like Louisiana and Georgia, they remain, and those tend to be relics from the Jim Crow era when the conservative Democratic Party was trying to preserve sort of one-party rule in those states, and they haven't really changed those constitutions. 50% true. That is very much true of the South, and Jesse Jackson- Oh, sure. I didn't mean Maine. I I meant, sorry, Louisiana, like- Oh, I'm going Iowa and South Dakota on you in a minute. So oh, okay. Get out, get out your corn. Uh, we're going to the corn palace in more ways than one. Definitely it was true in places like Georgia that people saw this as a way to maintain white power. Jesse Jackson's uh, or political organization sued Georgia, I believe, in the 1980s, arguing that it had a racially discriminatory effect because it made it less likely that people of color would wind up winning elections. But there's really a broader thread that connects things, and it's states with one-party rule. Yes, that was true in Louisiana, where they came up with their highly unusual primary, which of course produced David Duke as one of the choices and the head of the Klan at one point. Ah, yes. But the common thread is actually one-party rule. States that had a dominant Democratic Party or a dominant Republican Party were fearful that the winner of the primary, that it would just be only the people in that party would choose the winner. And this, of course, was the impetus for people like Robert LaFala in my home state of Wisconsin having a primary that thought, well, if the dominant party picks the leader, you'll never have any real choices in things. As LaFollette liked to say, if bad men control the nominations, we cannot have good government. And so Iowa and South Dakota are examples that also have runoff elections, in part because the Republican Party was very dominant in those places. And so they set a threshold at 35%, that if no candidate gets at least 35% of the vote, there will be a runoff election. There really wasn't a Jim Crow consideration in either of those states, but there was a sense of not letting a dominant party run over all of these things. So I would say the the common thread is one party dominance more than Jim Crow, though certainly the Southern flavor of those had it. So an instant runoff, you know, the problem with the runoff election is people have to come back a couple weeks later. And that adds expense and a lot of people don't care and, and it's going to be a problem. And the idea why ranked choice voting is sometimes called instant runoff voting is saying, all right, Tell us who your next choice would be if your first choice isn't available. And you can do this all at one time. You don't have to come back 
two weeks later, but it will accomplish the same thing as a runoff election. Namely, we'll find out who your choice is. You list your choices. If I can't have this, here's my next choice. And it allows people to do what political science call voting sincerely that you can vote for your preferred candidate without worrying you're going to be a spoiler. So ranked choice voting tends to help third parties. So say I'm a green, but I really don't want Donald Trump to win the election. I'm thinking, boy, I'd really rather have a green win, but boy, what I really, really don't want is Donald Trump to win. And this can work the same way on on the political right as well. So you can have your cake and eat it too that you can vote for your green candidate who you know isn't going to win or very unlikely to and have your vote for Biden. So part of this is something that third parties have liked, political independents have liked, and Maine has long had a movement of political independence. So people are willing to consider these other parties. There was ranked choice voting in a number of a number of cities before this. Right. San Francisco had uh, here in Maine. Portland had it in the city elections. I think Minneapolis may have had it. Uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico. But on the state level, we were the first to do this. Here, it largely was a partisan thing. In addition to the nonpartisan people, it was a result of our 2010 governor's election when I remember it well. Paul LePage was elected. It was a kind of as, as Paula Page put it himself, I was Trump before Trump was Trump. Paul, I mean, Paula Page won with about uh, 39% of the vote. What Democrats didn't like to mention was that John Baldacci, the previous Democrat, won with an even lower percentage of the vote right. than that. I think he won with 37%. There was an independent that had about 21% of the vote. So there was some of this that was like, oh, we can't let that happen again. And so in Maine, ranked choice voting became kind of the independent slash no labels people plus the Democrats against the Republicans who tended to think this is all a plot because you're still mad about LePage. And Bruce Poliquin losing an election this way uh, in our congressional election here in 2018 only added really large flammable logs to that fire for the Republicans who now hate ranked choice voting even more. And so one question, if we have this for president and the the Republicans tried to get a people's veto to block its application, they fell short on the signatures, but they are suing to claim that the signatures were disqualified. Some of them should be valid. But one issue is Republicans in Maine don't like using ranked choice voting as much. So Democrats are more willing to use it. But we just saw in a very heavily contested Republican primary in the second district that a lot of Republicans just won't do it on on principle. So that could have a lot of uh, of effects as well. So that's a good place to ask and to to segue here because, yes, so those demographic trends that made Trump popular, there's this very fascinating symmetry between Maine's 2nd Congressional District and Nebraska's 2nd Congressional District, which, of course, as as your work has, has talked about quite eloquently, right, is the, the other states that uses the district method. And in some ways, you know, it's, it's pretty easy to argue that, right, Maine 2 demographically is a hit. It looks like a district of what the Democratic Party base used to be. Working class, maybe not socially very liberal, but economically so, and not necessarily reliant on college educated voters. 
Mm -hmm. uh, and then you have Nebraska's second district, which is basically the city of Omaha. Right. And it is racially much more diverse. It's a little whiter than the nation at average, but not that much. It's fairly college educated. And lo and behold, Nebraska too used to be quite Republican. And it went for Barack Obama in 2008 by a nose. It did. And First place Sarah Palin visited after the Republican convention that nominated her for vice president was Omaha. People knew from the get-go that Nebraska, too, was going to be in play. Their enactment was very different than me. It really wasn't. It was thinking more, uh, first off, it was largely driven by Democrats. And second, it was billed as, here's a way we can get people to come and campaign in a state where they would not otherwise go because it doesn't have a lot of electoral votes and it's so reliably Republican, hasn't gone Democratic since the LBJ 1964 landslide. It was pitched as that feature of the district plan, bring people in to come here and campaign. They really weren't thinking of this in the context of national change the way Maine was. Interesting. And of course, we should have been trying to kill it ever since. Yeah, I keep wondering about that. So and we should, you know, hat tip for the state trivia folks. Nebraska is the only state with a unicameral legislature. They are. One house. I think no, they're all senators, they say. Yep. Yes. And it's officially nonpartisan, but everybody knows. Everybody knows. Uh, so I'm wondering, much in the same way that, let's be honest, all discussions of admitting new states in American history have, have involved discussions of balance of power in the Senate, right? And so these, these questions of apportionment always have balances of power. So was there any reflection or discussion in Maine or Nebraska regarding their particular systems? Because I wouldn't be surprised if the Democrats in Maine might be trying to find a way to end this division of the state apportionment, much in the same way as Republicans in Nebraska are trying to find a way to not give Omaha a chance to vote for a Democratic president? Well, I think in Nebraska, there's certainly a perception, I'd say they're almost certainly right of the Republicans, that this is only something that can help Democrats. That given its druthers, Nebraska's going to vote for a Republican candidate for president. It can never turn out that way. Maine, I don't think, has ever had a perception that having a district plan tilts the board in favor of either political party. Okay. Uh, I could picture a scenario where it might be Maine 1. And it isn't just that Maine 2 is, it, you know, Maine 1 has gotten more liberal. It's not just like, well, Maine 1 stayed the same and Maine 2, they've moved. Well, they both have changed. And you could have an election where That's Maine 1 point. might be the way to hold on. Maine doesn't really have a sense that this is a system that hurts one party. And so there really hasn't been much. Periodically, you'll hear somebody talk about it. It has not been a major issue in Maine talking about getting rid of it on the behalf of either party. And it should be noted, Maine has repeatedly rejected efforts to join the National Popular Vote Compact, you know, that, that Illinois has passed and a number of states have passed where states right. agree, we will pledge our electors no matter how we vote to the popular vote winner. I think that's been turned down at least three times in the legislature. I don't think it's ever gotten to the, to the governor. So in Maine, I think there's 
I don't know if you'd say contentment, but there isn't a lot of energy in Maine right now to change how we pick our electoral votes. I think a lot of people in Maine, you know, not, you know, there are liberal people who argue on principle we should change from the Senate, but that discussion is almost always part of a context of should we have senators by state? There really isn't much energy in Maine right now to change that. Nebraska, I mean, Nebraska passed it and was vetoed by a Democratic governor. There you have a much stronger sense of it having a partisan tilt. Interesting. Okay. So I have, uh, I have a, a final question here, actually. Well, so even though we're a history podcast, a little bit of right now, is there a metric? Like you could argue the residents of Maine too might be some of the most high impact voters in the country in terms of their voting in a toss up Senate, you know, a close Senate race, a close house race. They're in a, a presidential swing state district. Is there some sort of metric you guys have for who has the, who has the most electorally relevant district in the country? I am unaware of any metric, although I'll bet there's probably some graduate student at a Big Ten school that's doing quantitative work on that. But you can make a really good argument for that. And let me throw in then, Maine is one of the few states that has its senators elected, state senators elected on a two-year term. So our whole legislature's up for re-election. Plus, we've got various things we may be voting on. We've got a big vote about a... uh, a clean uh, energy project power line. We might be voting on getting rid of ranked choice voting. We've got one of the most competitive congressional races in the country. That main two stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I, there isn't a political science metric I know of, but but heck yes, absolutely. As political scientists will tell you, most congressional uh, seats are not competitive anymore. Correct. Uh, especially at the House level. The first district is certainly not expected to be competitive. And uh, it, it ver- they got as good an argument for where the, where, where the action is as, as anybody. And I think it's very likely Trump will come and campaign here. And here, it, the proof is in the pudding. Look at all the people who've come to the second district. Donald Trump gave a speech in Lisbon, Maine, in Androscoggin County, about four days before the election. When else would a presidential camp? I mean, yeah. not that Lisbon isn't a lovely community, but of course. why would you go there without a district plan? And the answer is, there is no way on earth you would unless your plane was running out of gas to go someplace. You know, I hadn't thought about the benefits of that for my second favorite Lisbon. Ah, okay. And so that is, that is, that is great. That's Are not, you Portuguese or? That's, not a, that's not a dig. <laughs> okay, well, just, it's a benefit for Maine. And I think it's one of yes. the reasons people like the district plan is we get more attention than we would otherwise. Omaha right now is getting more attention than it would otherwise. And we get people coming to Maine and making an effort and talking about our stuff. And I think one of the really democratic problems of the Electoral College is who's going to go to Kansas and talk about sunflowers or farm subsidies? True. The last two questions for you. First of all, what are you up to that you're excited about these days that our listeners should check out? Ah, well, um, I, would, I would encourage them to uh, keep an eye out for the next edition after the election of uh, David Schultz's presidential swing states. It's a deep dive into 
uh, about a dozen states that are interesting. Amy Freed and I wrote, Maine was included in this for the first time after 2016 because nobody thought Maine was a swing state and that they were, uh, that the, the we now are in some ways. And I'd encourage people to check that out probably in 2021. My non-academic plug about something I'm working on that I just think your listeners might have interest in in their own towns is we have a lot of students, a lot of kids are really in need of a lot of help for going back to school. A lot of people are out of work. School has been so challenging for everybody. I'm on the board of an organization here in Augusta that is working to provide school supplies uh, to children. But my pitch is, For any of your listeners, look around and see if there are efforts. The kids in your town need help, need people caring about it. And as somebody who hopes to be teaching a good long time, I want students to feel excited and encouraged and to feel like school's going to be something good again. And I'd encourage people to look for ways to help uh, students, whether it's in Maine or anywhere else in the country, because the need is enormous. That is an excellent plug. Thanks very much for that. You're very welcome. And My thanks. program is called the Greater Augusta Back to School Program. But honestly, uh, okay. I think people should help in their own town. That is an excellent point and something that we should all take to heart. Thank you. And so with that, I want to thank you very much for your time. Jim Melcher, thanks for joining us on Mainly History. And hopefully we'll have you back sometime. This was a pleasure. I'd love to talk to you again. That's our show. Join us next time as we get morbid for a bonus Halloween episode. We'll learn about the rise of the funeral industry as Kelly Brennan Earhart drops by to talk about the business of death. Did you ever wonder what the undertakers do to the corpse? You won't after listening to our discussion as Mainly History digs deep for Halloween. In the meantime, follow us on Twitter at Mainly History to stay up to date on our upcoming episodes and guests. There was an election for greatest audience, you'd win in a landslide. See ya!